Hello friends, and thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon from Spring Hill Baptist Church in Millport, Alabama. We're currently working through the Gospel of John in our sermon series entitled, That You May Have Life. Our prayer is that this time in God's Word would be edifying for you. God bless. Go ahead and take out your Bibles and open to the book of John. We're in John 18 today. John 18. So you can go ahead and, and take out your copy of God's Word. If you don't have one, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Um, we like to, to make sure that we're staying closely to the Word as, as I preach. Otherwise, uh, we're really going to be lost here, okay? So uh, go ahead and open that to the book of John, chapter 18, verses 28 through 32. Um, I don't know how much you've been kind of plugged in to what's been happening in the last few days in the world. Um, and really, this is just the arbitrary part of the world. I, I don't care much about celebrity news or entertainment news or anything like that. I, I care very little about the things in that category that go on in our world. However, there are a few uh, figures, public figures, musicians, sports athletes, things like that, that I, and actors that I follow and, and pay attention to. Uh, I'm always cautiously hopeful, and I say that word very intentionally, cautiously hopeful, whenever I hear about a celebrity or a public figure professing faith in Jesus. You may have heard the last uh, couple of days, it's, it's been all over your timeline if you're plugged into kind of social media and stuff, that uh, Kanye West, you know what, I'm just going to pull the audience for a second. Raise your hand if you have ever heard the name Kanye West. Okay, almost everybody. Very good. Raise your hand if you have an idea of what he actually does. Good. Raise your hand if you like know one of his songs. Okay, much less. That's what I thought. Okay, uh, now the reason I, I bring him up is because recently Kanye West has uh, made a profession of faith and look, we can't peer into his soul and know the contents of what's going on in his heart. We, it's impossible to know that. However, I've been following his life and music very closely for the last 13 years. He's one of the people that I find very fascinating and I've followed him very closely for the past 13 years. 13 years is a long time for me. It may not be a long time, a big percentage of your life. It's a pretty big percentage of mine. It's about half. Not quite half. I'm not that young, okay? But it's close. It's close to half. Uh, Kanye West has a reputation. He has is, he is glorified sexual intimacy with countless partners. He's worshipped money and status. He's hyper-narcissistic with his tendencies. Um, he made an album not too long ago, and I'm not making this up. It was called Yeezus, being a play on his nickname being Ye and Jesus. Yeezus was the name of it. In that, he had a song that was called I Am a God. It's about as pagan as you could possibly imagine a public figure being. And this is the background that he comes from. I mean, I'm kidding you not when I say that this is a lost goose, you guys. All right? He's about as lost as you can possibly imagine a public figure being. Now, I say that because recently he made a profession of faith. And it, like I said, you're cautiously hopeful whenever you hear something like that. And that makes sense. But like I said, I followed his life and music pretty closely. And um, there are a lot of interviews that are out about this new kind of transformation that he's professing. I've watched a lot of interviews. I've read a lot of articles. But I, guys, I genuinely believe that he submitted his life to Christ. And when we sing a song like Shouting Time, I can't do the shouting. I just can't. Okay? That song, when we sing a song like that, that that celebrates a sinner coming to faith in Christ, it takes on a different tone whenever it's a guy quite like that, right? I've done a lot of research. Um, He meets regularly with a pastor, by the way, that graduated from a Southern Baptist seminary. His name is Adam Tyson. He pastors a church in California. He learned under John MacArthur. Some of you guys know who that is. He believes in justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. I mean, Kanye West is being mentored by a guy that really, really knows his stuff. He flies this guy to his ranch in Wyoming once a week, talked for two or three hours about doctrine. They sat down for the first time and talked about doctrine. He walked him down the Romans road. He talked about justification by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, John 3, 16, and 
Kanye West interrupted him and said, dude, I already told you, I understand, I'm born again. Why are we talking about this? I want to learn doctrine. I want to dig deep and learn these things. It's mind-blowing, right? (laughs) It's kind of mind-blowing. Kanye West said this in an interview I listened to recently. He said, quote, I used to think I was the God of this culture. Now I realize the culture was my God. He has a new album that released Friday. It was called Jesus is King. In it, he quotes the book of John, which we're in today, twice, maybe three times. He quotes the book of Philippians, Ephesians, and the Gospel of Luke. In one of his songs, he uses the phrase, he saved a wretch like me. He has a song called God Is, where I'm going to quote some of the lyrics. He says, King of kings, Lord of lords, all the things he has in store, from the rich to the poor, all are welcome through the door. You won't ever be the same when you call on Jesus' name. Listen to the words I'm saying, Jesus saved me, now I'm saying. And I know, I know God is the force that picked me up. I know Christ is the fountain that filled my cup. He says, all my idols, let them go. All the demons, let them know. This is a mission, not a show. It's pretty amazing stuff, isn't it? So you add those things. He doesn't stand to monetarily gain from that, by the way. He's going to lose fans. He already has. People have been scoffing about him in social media. I've paid attention to that, too. So I look at that, and, and kind of my internal thoughts, and maybe yours as well, are, man, God saved one of the most self-righteous, godless men in Hollywood. And that's amazing, isn't it? And yes, let's praise God. God is amazing. My soul, like I said, I've been nourished even thinking and dwelling on those things. I listened to his album, and you may think this is weak, and that's okay, but I wept twice just because of the, the goodness of the gospel in changing people's hearts. And literally, you understand, millions, millions, tens of millions of new people heard the gospel over the weekend. That's amazing. That's good news. But I had a reality check. While I was celebrating Kanye's new life in Christ, godless man, you know, self-righteous, all this stuff, I had a reality check, and that's that Kanye didn't deserve hell any more than I did. Any more than you did. I start with that for this reason. I want us to come away from the scriptures today, this morning, understanding what we're really singing when we sing songs like Amazing Grace. There's one thing that merited Jesus taking your place on that cross, and it wasn't anything that you had done. The one thing that merited Jesus taking your place on that cross was the gracious love of God and nothing else. It's the gospel. So as we look at John this morning, I want you to understand that we serve an amazing God. So let's look at it. John 18, verses 28 through 32. This is what the scriptures say. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters. He's talking about the Jews. So they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful. For us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken. To show by what kind of death he was going to die. Just to quickly recap the last couple of weeks. Jesus has been arrested. 
He's been brought to a courtyard in front of the unofficial grandfathered in high priest. His name was Annas. Jesus then displays unbelievable and unwavering loyalty in remaining faithful to the will of his father despite being physically stricken during his interrogation. And we just got a small glimpse of that that Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us in much greater detail. We left off last week highlighting the vast innocence of Jesus in his interrogation before Annas. Then him being sent to Caiaphas, the official high priest, for official questioning and prosecution. We saw that in verse 24. Just look at it real quick. This is where we left off last week. Honest then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And that's where we left off. And so the story naturally goes to this guy Caiaphas, who is the high priest where Jesus will once again, now officially, be interrogated by the Sanhedrin. But strangely, John is the only gospel author that completely omits this interrogation before Caiaphas. It's very strange because look where we're going to pick up in verses 25 through 27 we just see another telling of Peter's denial and then verse 28 says then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's house which is strange because it doesn't hit on this interrogation with Caiaphas whatsoever. In this narration, we can go and read Matthew, Mark, and Luke and see the details of when Jesus was with Caiaphas and being tried by the Sanhedrin. Jesus is accused of blasphemy on the grounds that he rightly claims to be the Christ and the Son of God. He is blindfolded, he is beaten, he is spat upon. Then he's formally sentenced to death and bound to be taken to Pilate, the Roman governor. Now why the omission? Those seem like important details, right? If John's trying to build dramatic effect, certainly he would include that. Why would he omit such an important part of the story? Well, remember what we looked at last week. That the highlight of honest interrogation of Jesus is the innocence of Jesus. Instead of going and continuing to push that agenda, John then says, check out how innocent Jesus is. And then we're going to go straight to Pilate where we see that Jesus will die the most guilty and cursed type of death. You see the, the comparison here. The most innocent being that ever existed dying the most cursed death that one could ever die. It's artistic. It's poetic. A huge antithesis. It is the height of irony. It's the perfect display of the gospel. The innocent for the guilty. If you're taking notes this morning, this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at John who exposes two truths. The first is this. That sin begins in the heart before it becomes behavior. Sin begins in the heart before it becomes behavior. What I mean by that is that it's internal before it becomes external. Now this isn't the main point of the passage, but this is a principle that we see in the brief example of the Jewish leaders here in just a moment in verse 28. We're going to see that they're going to be bringing blasphemy charges against the Son of God and seeking to put him to death, which is already an ironic statement. Look at verse 28, just the first part. Then Caiaphas, I'm sorry, then they led Jesus from the, governor's, uh, from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters it was early morning. I'll pause for just a second there. This is sometime likely after sunrise, just barely after sunrise. Jesus, like I said, has been arrested and interrogated overnight. The Jews now bring Jesus to the Roman authorities for official prosecution. When we read that word, governor's headquarters, the governor was a prefect. Now, I don't expect you to know what that is, and governor is really not the best translation for what that is. But Pilate was sort of a regional um, 
governor, a regional leader of a certain group of people. He was a Roman official appointed over a region. The Roman Empire was very big. He was appointed to be the, the ruler, so to speak, over Judea, this very small part of the Roman Empire. He was a military leader and a final judge of affairs, which makes sense as to why the Jews say, we can't really do anything until we bring it to Pilate first, because he is the final call on what we are supposed to do through this. The second part of verse 28. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled. What could eat the Passover? Now this is kind of confusing, especially as we read this as American citizens way, way into the future, you know, based on this event. Certainly what I want you to understand is that a Jew who entered a roofed dwelling place of Gentile people was considered to be ceremonially unclean, meaning that they had to do a lot of rituals and things to clean themselves up, and especially for Pharisees or members of the Sanhedrin, they wouldn't want to do this because they want to put on their best face and be seen very honorably to the people around them. Now why would they think it would be unclean to enter a Gentile home? This is based on research and archaeological and scholarly studies. Gentiles were believed, especially people in the Roman uh, Empire, were believed to bury aborted fetuses, that's corpses, in their homes or to just flush them down the drains. This is Jewish text, all right? And so the Jews, thinking that that was the case, now whether that was the case or not, I really don't know, but thinking that that was the case, they said, hey, we can't go in this person's house because it is all kinds of cursed up in there. We can't go in there because we will come out ceremonially unclean and, and that's not good for us. We want to continue to eat our Passover feast. And so they would remain outside, meaning that they wanted to avoid pollution. Now the purpose of John writing this, why would he say this? It's kind of confusing. Why would he say this? Because if they wanted to eat the feast of worship, that is Passover, they would need to make sure that they presented themselves worthy before God. Do you hear the irony in that statement? They're about to kill Jesus. They're about to kill God. And they're worried about presenting themselves as worthy worshipers to be able to take the Passover. John loves irony. <laughs> he loves irony. And this is the height of it. The men we see taking precautions to maintain their cleanness before God are the same ones that are manipulating the judicial system to ensure that they succeed in murdering the Christ who is, by the way, the true Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. It's irony, isn't it? So what's John's principle here? John's principle that I think he wants us to understand is that man is defiled not by what is on the outside, but by what is on the inside. Man is defiled not by what is on the outside, what you're wearing, the way that you look, the food that you eat, blah, blah, blah. Man is defiled by a defiled conscience and heart. In other words, sin begins in the heart before it becomes behavior. Consider the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus talks about a whole lot of things. And you notice he supersedes his own law in a lot of ways. He says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I'm telling you in your heart if you lust after someone, you've already done it. Sin begins here. You've heard it said, don't murder. I'm telling you if you hate someone else, you've already committed it in here. Because sin is in here before it's here on the hands or in the mouth or on your feet or on your fingers that you tap the screen with. See what I'm saying? Begins in the heart. The sin of gossip doesn't begin with your tongue. It begins in your heart where you pridefully and selfishly are wanting to be the source of information. Cheating on a test doesn't begin with pencil on paper. It begins with a decision to deceive your teacher and pridefully steal a grade that you don't deserve. 
Arguing with your spouse doesn't begin with the words you speak, but with pridefully wanting him or her to know that they're wrong and you're right. Succumbing to addiction begins with a heart that forfeits self-control before you tap the image, before you browse the site, before you take a sip. It takes place in the heart. The prodigal older son, his behavior was fine, but his heart was as cold as ice because he was prideful, he was angry because he was sinning in his heart. By the way, the people that Jesus is rebuking in that passage are not the ones that are living like wretches. It's the ones that are the Pharisees that are pompously saying, how are you going to save Matthew the tax collector when I got it all put together because sin begins right here before it's here before it's here the Jews believed that their preparedness for worship was based on their exterior instead of their interior my point is this that you can be polished and nice on the outside and you can be a wretch on the inside in fact we all are And I think that we could even take this principle too. They're talking about preparing for worship. I think that this is a wonderful principle for us to understand is that your preparation for worship is not by putting on your Sunday best outfit, but by putting on your best and humble and repentant spirit that confesses a broken heart but gladly embraces the restoration that was purchased by the bloody Passover lamb who took away the sins of the world. Want to know how you prepare for worship? Internalize that. Internalize that. I'm broken, but God has cleaned me. The second truth that John seeks to expose here is that Jesus sovereignly, innocently, became the curse for us. Jesus sovereignly, innocently, became the curse for us. I have phrased that very, very carefully. Because I think we see a couple of things in this passage, really three or four things, all in that one little phrase. Sovereignly, because God's in control. Jesus is in control of his own murder, you know that? He was in control of these circumstances. He's far more than a victim. He is a sovereign savior. He's also innocent. (laughs) He innocently became the curse for us because what John has already highlighted is that he did not earn this penalty. He became the curse for us. We'll talk about that in a minute. And he did it for us which will be really the weight of the application we'll hit on here in just a moment. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and I mentioned that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who have all written gospel accounts, have different goals in their writing. Certainly, their main goal is to bring people to faith and repentance in Christ, but they all do it by kind of traveling down a different road. They tell us different things about Jesus because they want you to pick up on different characteristics of who he is. John's is the most unique and the most different. His main goal is very simple. He wants you, the reader, and all people that have ever read the book of John to understand that Jesus is God. He is God. That's why he talks about his sovereignty. That's why he talks about his power. That's why he talks about his omniscience. Because Jesus is not just the Son of God, but he is God himself. And so why the admission? Again, we see... That we highlight, you know, honest interrogation of Jesus, the innocence of Jesus, then naturally we go straight to Pilate, where we see Jesus will die the most guilty and cursed type of death, innocent for the guilty. So look at verse 29, where we kind of see this unpacked. So Pilate went outside to them, by the way, very respectfully so. He didn't want them to come in and defile. He understands. He goes to them. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? 
Now, Pilate had essentially a courtroom. He had a judgment seat, so it was no problem for his servants or his guards to then pick up his judgment seat, take it outside to accommodate for these Jewish guys that didn't want to enter into his place. Seems like this is something that they'd done before. He asked them this phrase, what accusation do you bring against this man? In our day and age, in our culture, you know, if the, you know if maybe you've watched like Judge Judy or something, or being in a courtroom, you hear the bailiff say something. He says, all rise, court is now in session, the honorable judge, so-and-so, you know what I'm talking about, right? That means that officially on the dock, on the record, on the minutes, that court has officially begun. This sentence that Pilate has just said, this question, is the equivalent of that. What accusations do you bring against this man? Or officially him slamming the gavel down and saying, court is in session, let's do this thing. It's a formal beginning of a trial. Now Pilate, it's, it's an interesting question because Pilate was certainly already somewhat familiar with Jesus and with the trial that they're bringing against him. He had his soldiers, I remember, already deployed to go and arrest Jesus and aid with that arrest. And he wouldn't have sent his soldiers if he wasn't somewhat aware of what the circumstances were. So really, maybe there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek to even asking this question to these Jewish guys. But because of this, it is very likely that the Jews expected this. I mean, Pilate's been behind it this whole time. They probably expected this to be a quick case. Pilate sides with the Sanhedrin's ruling, death, but Pilate calls for a real trial with evidence, which, to be honest with you, the, sub- the evidence is substantial that he is really just giving them the runaround. He's giving them the runaround. He's trying to give them a hard time. Look at verses 30 and 31. I'll see what, show you what I mean. They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. There's a little bit of frustration there. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. I don't know if you've ever seen movies and documentaries and things, you know, where they sort of try to portray these events. And Pilate's got on the Roman garb, you know, and he's up there and, and you know, he's kind of asking the questions of the Sanhedrin and they're kind of giving their case. Uh, maybe in something like the Passion of the Christ or like the Bible documentary that came on History Channel not too long ago, you watch that and it seems like, it sort of comes off like, Pilate is this wrestling with morality character where he's like, the guy seems innocent to me and I want to you know, preserve this, but, but then he eventually just kind of is coerced and, and he gives it over because of the fear of man or something. There's not really substantial evidence that that's the tone in Pilate's heart at this time. The reason I say that is that Pilate was probably not so much caught up in the morality of the moment. Recorded historical documents strongly attest to Pilate being a highly egotistical man. He was far less moral than he was on a power trip most of the time. This guy was brutal. He was willing to take down anyone. The reason I mention this is that Pilate had agreed to, to have Jesus arrested, which sent a message to the Jews that he was totally on board with punishing Jesus to the full based on the Sanhedrin's ruling. But when Jesus is brought to him, suddenly he starts making them jump through legal hoops. What are the accusations? You guys go figure it out. Knowing that they couldn't kill him because that privilege had been revoked from them, Pilate's given these guys the runaround. This is far less about Pilate upholding justice and more about the ego building of making them submit to his own authority. Now we've already seen that mob violence was not something that was off the table with Jewish people. They would eventually stone Stephen, the Christian, first Christian martyr. Jesus had already been attempted to be stoned. The Jews weren't allowed to legally stone Jesus, so they were at Pilate's mercy if they wanted their way, which was death by crucifixion. And that's kind of the tone of verse 31. Take him yourselves. You'd be the judge. Well, we can't. (laughs) Look at verse 32. This was to fulfill. That word fulfill is so important. Remember, John is communicating Jesus is God. 
This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Sovereign. Sovereign. What's the main thing that John wants to communicate about Jesus? Say it. Jesus is what? He's God. That's right. John is here saying, Jesus predicted the sort of death that he would die, which was crucifixion. He is God. The couple of instances that he's talking about, John uh, 3, verses 14 and 15, you don't have to turn there, although you can. It says, "And and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's crucifixion. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He's saying, I'm going to be ascended even on a mountain just like it happened in the book of Numbers, which is what he's referring to. John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33 is another instance. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, he's talking about crucifixion, will draw all people to myself. It says, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. He's sovereign. Now why is this significant? Because crucifixion was viewed by the Jews as the most horrible, pathetic, embarrassing, and shameful way for someone to die. And God took that death. Shameful. It's horrific. People that died by hanging were considered to be cursed. Now when you hear that word cursed or shamed, me and you, we think, you know, someone says to me, Caleb, shame on you. You shouldn't have eaten that cookie before dinner. What? That doesn't mean anything. The word shame on me, it, I don't really care that you said that because in our culture it doesn't really mean a whole lot. In their culture, for someone to be shamed or cursed was a very, very heavy thing. In Deuteronomy 21, 23 is where it says that anyone that is hanged on a tree, a big piece of wood, was a cursed being. They were being true to their own law. I won't say their names because the sermon is being recorded and will be put online, but Z and G, who live in the Middle East, and we support them uh, prayerfully, financially, as a church, uh, they were here not too long ago. Remember this? And we were on the stage, and they talked about shame versus guilt culture. Do you guys remember that? And you guys remember that? They're talking about shame versus guilt, or shame versus honor culture, and that that was a really big deal over there, that if you said shame on you, it was the worst possible thing that you could say to somebody. However, if someone had honor, then it was the greatest possible thing that someone could have upon them. The reason I say that is for Jesus in the Middle East to be publicly hanged on a tree and seen as cursed would be fitting of a wicked, listen, it's the death fitting of a wicked, evil, waste of a life that deserved death, would be disowned by his funeral or disowned by his family. He would not be given a funeral. He would be treated like he never existed. This is the death of the Son of God. Think about that. Think about the type of death that Jesus underwent. Culturally, fitting of a wicked, evil, waste of a life that deserved death, disowned by family, zero funeral, treated like they never even existed. So why crucifixion? Why did Jesus choose this method? God chose this death because it perfectly typifies just what kind of death you and I deserve. Of a wicked man. Of one that deserves to be disowned. The one that is thoroughly sinful. That's you and me. That's not Jesus. Sin is our curse. Cursed is the one that hangs on the tree, you betcha. Because sin is our curse, we are condemned to eternity apart from God. But here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus became the curse. 
Jesus became the curse. Which is what it says in Galatians 3.13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us as it is written. Cursed is everyone who is hanging on a tree. You better believe it. Jesus became the curse. He bore the curse that we who bear the curse may have the curse lifted from us. He bore the shame that we could bear his honor. He redeemed us. That's what Jesus did on the cross. It wasn't just a painful death. It wasn't just a death of suffering. It wasn't just a death of torment and torture. It was the death of a cursed man. And the only man that wasn't cursed took it upon himself. Now the tendency when reading this narrative is to look with contempt at the Sanhedrin who slaughtered the lamb and certainly that's warranted in a lot of ways. You look at them and you think what a bunch of wicked despicable men. But guys the lamb of God wasn't taken from the father. The father offered the lamb. Jesus isn't a hopeless victim. He's not a helpless sufferer. He's a sovereign savior. So I think that an appropriate application is don't look in contempt at the Jews. More appropriately, look in contempt at your own sin. You were the cursed one that needed Jesus to be cursed for your sake. And in his love and mercy, he bore the wrath reserved for you that all you could know is grace. So the application, I think, is very simple. I've been... Lately, it's weird. The older that I get, and the more I begin to internalize the gospel, the more I begin to just weep when I think about it. And I can't help it sometimes. The, the momentousness of this event that Jesus became cursed so that you could become honored. The weight of that, it just can't be overstated. Some of you guys need to just think about the gospel and just weep. Some of you really don't understand sin. Some of you really just don't understand the cross. Because if you did, it would break you apart. If you did, when you sing songs like Amazing Grace, you'd barely be able to get through them without crying. So I think that the application is very simple. That you need to say thank you. Really. Like really say thank you. Like really transparently be honest before the throne of God and internalize just how heavy the curse that Jesus became was. Like really fall on your face and say thank you. It's insulting to take that kind of a death for you and with it just play church. That's insulting. That is an insulting way to internalize the gospel. It's insulting. To take the most loving and sacrificial act that anyone could ever do and to just fumble through life trying to be a better person and try to be in church. That is weak. That is so weak. 
and it shortchanges the love of God. We just need to say thank you. We need to be undone. No one will go to heaven because they went to church. The kingdom of God are for those that understand that Jesus became the curse for you. And I think that there are people in this room that for the first time need to simply just submit to that reality and join the parade of the redeemed. Some of you are are so nervous and so prideful about publicly renouncing the past that you've only been playing church. You're so embarrassed because you don't want to walk an aisle or be baptized. Is that embarrassment bigger than the love of God? I mean, I've had countless conversations about this. I'm just so nervous about it. I can't. I can't. Jesus died for you. This is one of those passages. I was talking to James just a few minutes ago. It's one of those passages that the application is just, I can't, I can't tell you what to do with that. Either, either you have ears to hear or you just don't. And so my prayer leading up to this morning and this morning has just been that you would get over yourself. That you would just get over the pride and follow Jesus today. I think a great way to do that is not to try harder. It's not to try to be a better rule follower. It's to take that first point and pray that God would give you a heart that wants to love Jesus more than you love sin. Can we do that today? We want to thank you for listening to this week's sermon. For more information, you can find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash the Spring Hill Baptist. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. as we seek to make much of Jesus and loving above all else.